Welcome to the Audio Digest of the American Journal of Psychiatry. This is Dr. Susan Schultz with highlights for December 2016. We'll review postpartum psychosis and look at the association between pain and opioid use disorder. Depression is the focus in two studies. One looked at work productivity in relation to depression outcome, and the other examined neural response to rewards as a predictor of depression. Trauma is another theme this month. A longitudinal study followed adjustment disorder after trauma exposure. And our clinical case conference looks at post-deployment addictive combat attachment behaviors in former service members with PTSD. This article has been selected as meriting CME for readers who subscribe to the AJP CME course program. Each month, brief companion exams are created for three articles from the issue. By reading the articles and completing the online exam, individuals can earn up to one AMA PRA Category 1 credit per article. This activity is sponsored by the American Psychiatric Association. To subscribe, click on the CME link at the top of our homepage, ajp.psychiatryonline.org. We'll start the highlights with the report on addictive combat attachment behaviors. Marjorie Campbell and colleagues present the case of a Marine who continued to have high levels of PTSD symptoms after intensive treatment. Questioning revealed that he was reliving, stimulating, rewarding combat-related events for long periods. These activities were accompanied by what he called an adrenaline rush. The authors describe his subsequent treatment and then examine a case series of active duty personnel with PTSD and similar combat attachment behaviors. The behavioral pattern has several features of addiction. The service members with PTSD reported spending a lot of time playing combat-related video games and watching war-related movies or TV shows. They reported getting a rush or high at these times. The patients estimated they spent about five hours a day engaged in these behaviors. In contrast, they estimated that they averaged just an hour a day re-experiencing distressing combat-related memories. Nearly all of them reported features of addiction, such as tolerance or withdrawal. Several clinical phenomena were consistently observed. Combat-related activities changed after deployment, with markedly higher physiological arousal. The activities became more frequent and intense, with corresponding reductions in social interaction and enjoyment. Most of the combat veterans appeared to be unaware of how much they engaged in combat attachment behaviors, and they reported difficulty refraining from them. The highs experienced were consistently followed by depressive lows. Many combat veterans reported feeling confusion and shame for reliving combat events. These combat attachment behaviors may contribute to suboptimal treatment utilization and outcomes. Other behaviors include judgments about the behaviors by both clinicians and patients. 
history taking by clinicians may discourage the reporting of the intensely pleasurable aspect of patients' experiences. Our review article this month is about postpartum psychosis. The postpartum period is a high-risk period for relapse among women with known psychiatric illness. The prevalence of first-onset affective psychosis is low, but the risk is still much higher in the month following delivery than in any other period during a woman's life. Virli Berzink and colleagues describe the presentation, etiology, and management of postpartum psychosis. Clinical symptoms vary widely. Psychotic symptoms can be overlooked if they fluctuate or are hidden. It's important to ask both the patient and her family about early symptoms of psychosis, such as paranoid ideas or strong feelings of guilt. Depressed psychotic symptoms often include suicidal and infanticidal thoughts. These patients require a higher level of care. Psychiatric hospitalization is recommended for women with postpartum psychosis. Lithium is highly efficacious, but antipsychotics have not been as beneficial. Lithium plus ECT has been reported to be effective in a case series of patients with postpartum depression with psychotic features. Treatment for a breastfeeding woman is challenging. Sleep deprivation due to frequent awakenings for breastfeeding may contribute to the onset of mania. Strategies to preserve sleep include having another person feed the infant at night and providing the mother pharmacotherapy to support sleep. The strongest risk factors for postpartum psychosis are a history of bipolar disorder and a history of postpartum psychosis. About a third of women with either type of history are likely to have postpartum relapse. The rate is twice as high in women with bipolar disorder who don't take medication during pregnancy. The benefits of prophylaxis need to be weighed against the risk to the fetus but in all studies using prophylactic lithium treatment, women with bipolar disorder had significantly lower rates of postpartum relapse. Women whose history of psychosis is limited to the postpartum period are not at elevated risk of psychiatric episodes during pregnancy. For these women, prophylaxis using lithium immediately postpartum has been highly effective in preventing postpartum relapse. Our next topic is pain. Cross-sectional studies have indicated that pain is related to an increased risk of prescription opioid use disorders. Concerns have been raised that individuals with opioid use disorders may develop abnormal pain sensitivity or hyperalgesia. However, prospective data aren't available, so the relationship hasn't been demonstrated. Carlos Blanco and colleagues examine the connection between pain and prescription opioid use disorders over time in a nationally representative sample. The participants were interviewed twice, three years apart. Each time they were asked to rate the degree to which pain interfered with their daily activities. Prescription opioid use disorder was also evaluated. At both baseline and the three-year follow-up, 
pain and prescription opioid use disorders were related to one another. However, the longitudinal relationships were different. Patients with pain were more likely to have a prescription opioid use disorder at baseline and at follow-up. However, prescription opioid use disorder at baseline was not associated with pain at follow-up. Several demographic and clinical correlates were also directly related to both pain and prescription opioid use disorders. Younger people and men had a higher risk of prescription opioid use disorder, but a lower risk of pain compared to older respondents and women, respectively. Next, we'll turn to depression. Its economic burden is mainly due to lost work productivity, but not much is known about this relationship. With effective antidepressant treatment, work productivity improves but most studies have measured changes only between baseline and post-treatment. Manish Jha and colleagues tracked changes in work productivity over the course of antidepressant treatment. The participants were more than 300 employed patients with major depression. They were enrolled in a study comparing three antidepressant regimens. During the first six weeks of treatment, work productivity was measured every two weeks. Composite scores were created for absenteeism, presenteeism, and work productivity loss. At the end of acute treatment, the participants reported reduced absences from work and increased work productivity, even after accounting for changes in depression severity. Three distinct trajectories of changes in work productivity were identified. Robust early improvement, minimal change, and high impairment with a slight reduction after treatment. The group with robust early improvement and the group with minimal change started at similar levels of work productivity and depression severity. The group with early improvement in work productivity had markedly lower levels of depression severity throughout the trial, and they continued to be in remission at much higher rates at the end of treatment. Now we'll look at a possible predictor of depression. A blunted neural response to rewards has recently emerged as a potential mechanistic biomarker of adolescent depression. Event-related potentials are used to measure reward positivity during a monetary task. Brady Nelson and colleagues examined whether reward positivity prospectively predicted the development of depression in a large community sample of adolescent girls. None of the girls had a history of depression at baseline, according to a diagnostic interview. They participated in a monetary guessing task that provided feedback indicating monetary gain relative to loss. Neural responses were measured during the task. 18 months later, the diagnostic interview was repeated. A blunted reward positivity at baseline predicted first onset depressive disorder and greater depressive symptom scores at follow-up. Reward positivity was also a significant predictor independent of other major risk factors, including baseline depressive symptoms and adolescent and parental lifetime psychiatric history. The combination of blunted reward positivity 
and greater baseline depressive symptoms provided the greatest positive predictive value for first onset depressive disorder. Our final article is about adjustment disorder. In DSM-5, it's been recategorized as a trauma and stressor related disorder. It's one of the most poorly studied psychiatric diagnoses, and so Megan O'Donnell and colleagues examined its trajectory in the first 12 months after severe injury and whether it was less severe than other disorders. The data are from a large cohort study of injury survivors. The patients were assessed during hospitalization, three months later, and again at 12 months. Structured clinical interviews were used to evaluate psychiatric diagnoses. Self-report measures provided ratings of symptoms, disability, and quality of life. The prevalence rates for adjustment disorder at the two follow-ups were 19 and 16 percent respectively. The participants with adjustment disorder reported worse outcomes relative to those with no psychiatric diagnosis, but they had better outcomes than those diagnosed with other psychiatric disorders. The participants who had adjustment disorder at three months post-injury were significantly more likely to meet criteria for a psychiatric disorder at 12 months, but many people developed the disorder beyond the initial three months. Intrusive memory was the symptom most likely to be associated with the diagnosis of adjustment disorder. Also, a number of PTSD criterion E symptoms were significantly related to either adjustment disorder or high levels of disability. These include poor concentration, disturbed sleep, and irritability or anger. The study also looked at whether the DSM subtypes of adjustment disorder are distinguishable. The analysis did not support subtypes based on anxiety or depression symptoms, but did support subtypes based on severity levels of low, medium, and high. This concludes our audio highlights of the December issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry. Please visit our website, ajp.psychiatryonline.org, for the complete versions of these and other articles. We also welcome comments. They can be emailed to ajp at psych.org. Next month, our topics will include how to differentiate effects of Parkinson's disease, deep brain stimulation, and life events, hypnotic medications and suicide risk, neural predictors of initiating alcohol use in adolescence, neurometabolic disorders in patients with treatment refractory depression, diagnosis of premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and increased energy as a primary criterion for bipolar mania. We hope you'll join us. Thank you for listening.